Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello, I'm Dr. Matt Hannon. Hello, I'm Dr. Rebecca Ford, and welcome to Local Zero. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Ewan Gibbs. Ewan's a historian at the University of Glasgow, specialising in the relationship between energy, industry, and community in Scotland and the UK. He's also author of the acclaimed book Coal Country, a deep exploration into deindustrialization in Scotland's coal mining communities. We'll be talking with Ewan about the historic connections between energy, place and community in Scotland and the UK, the lessons that history can teach us as we get to work on creating a just transition and what that transition might look like for those people and communities around the country. British capitalism or Scottish capitalism is going green in the context of the defeat of the labour movement in the 1980s and 1990s, the the construction of an increasingly precarious labour market, and that includes the energy sector. And as always, you can reach out to us on our dedicated Twitter handle. So if you haven't already, go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod to get involved with discussions there. And email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. So, as always, wouldn't be Local Zero without Fraser. So, how is everyone? Good, good, good. How are we all doing? Yeah, excellent. I'm all right. Yeah, it feels like we are inching ever closer to the big day, COP26, just around the corner. <laughs> we're, we're, well, as we record this, anyway, we are in autumn, officially. So uh, we're not far away now. Wow, I think, yeah, less than two months to go, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. That's shockingly close. Shockingly close. Yeah, so there's, there's, been, there's been some interesting kind of news articles, I think. We've been having a think about how we frame this, kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So why don't we begin with the good news stories first? It's always nice, always heartening. Kick us off. Tell us what we've got to smile about this week. Yeah, what well, one of the things that caught my eye this week was EV sales going up through the roof. So we saw electric car sales in the first half of 2021 nearly triple globally versus last year. Yeah. Which is great, actually. And I can say for the EVs, um, I've been on holiday the last couple of weeks and doing bits of driving around Scotland in my EV. 
I definitely saw a lot of other EVs on the road and the older ones you kind of know because they're they're fairly obvious brands and then the newer ones ours has got this green stripe on the number plate which makes Ooh. it really easy to start to recognize them yeah. um sought after yeah more and more charging New stations that symbol yeah. yeah i know right <laughs> check me out i'm green the green stripe <laughs> Uh, yeah, but definitely charging stations where I did not expect to see them in some of the more remote parts of Scotland. So yeah. that was quite, I was quite heartened by that, actually. Okay, well, so we've had the good news. Fraser, I think it's fair to say, objectively speaking, from a kind of green and eco perspective, that there was some big news this week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've had, for anyone who hasn't seen yet, we've had for the first time in, in UK history, Greens in government. They've gone into a conference and supply agreement with, with the SNP in Holyrood in Scotland. Um, and it looks it looks quite promising. I think a lot of people are skeptical of it given the SNP's relationship with the Northeast and with oil and with kind of missing targets on climate in the past. A lot of people think that the Greens maybe have a bit of a raw deal and that the ministries that they've been allowed to take over seem to be responsible for quite minor things. But actually, when you dig into it, they have a lot of responsibility in climate terms over active travel, a lot of funding for that. They have a lot of responsibility over elements of public transport, not all of it, which I'm sure uh, Patrick Harvey and Lorna Slater would have loved to have seen. But they also have a huge chunk of energy efficiency and heat decarbonisation, which we know we talk about on this on the show all the time. It's going to be huge the next 10, 15, 20 all the way up to, to 2045, to the Scottish government's targets. So it's a big thing. Hopefully they can deliver on it, and hopefully there isn't too much politics to those key areas that, that we're looking at just now. Yeah, and I think you know the, the big kind of ticket items there is that um, both Patrick and Lorna will be uh, ministers. I think Patrick was uh, <laughs> become minister of net zero buildings, if I read that correctly yesterday. Um, but also that there were other key kind of policies, if we can pull some out, the £500 million Just Transition Fund, mm -hmm. which remains to be seen how that's going to be spent and crucially where and with whom. And I think the other thing that caught my eye was the 10% of the transport budget uh, being focused on active travel. So uh, potentially big changes there if these come to pass. Really exciting, uh, really, really exciting potential. And I think it's going to come down to the devil being in the detail. It's nice to see that there is you know, some money being put aside to be invested in areas which we know are absolutely critical. Yeah. But how that actually plays through, we've got some big targets to make, some big changes to make. Yeah. And it needs to be done in a way that is going to actually help us move, move quickly and move fairly. Well, uh, and our homework was marked by none other than Greta Thunberg uh, this, this week as well. So <laughs> when this goes out, obviously this will be mm -hmm. uh, maybe in the distant past. But I mean, some were arguing that the BBC article on this was maybe making a little bit more of her comments than than uh, if you actually watched the interview. But... The news, the news making more of comments. <laughs> she did say, uh, and if I can, uh, I can quote, it's a bit strange that we're talking about single individual oil fields when the UK is already producing so much oil as it is. It's not just we need to stop future expansions, but we also need to scale down the existing ones. Um, and that she found it very peculiar that we were pushing at a new oil field in Cambo when we were hosting COP26. So thoughts on that, guys? I think she's spot on. I think... I Important context of the interview was that she she did, she wasn't going at Scotland specifically on everything. It was effectively that there is no such thing as a climate leader. Nobody is doing enough. No country is doing enough just now. That's correct. And Scotland being a little bit better than most places on generating renewable electricity does not a climate leader make, right? So it's not enough when nobody is doing enough to do a little bit better than other places. And I don't think it's in anyone's interest to pretend for, for Scotland to go... <gasps> You're kidding. No, no, we are. We've been telling ourselves for so long that we are. 
Um, it's in nobody's interest to, to let that live on when we know there's so much more that we can do. So you're right, the headline maybe blew it out a little bit, but the sentiment behind it, I, I'd struggle to disagree with. Yeah. Lead by example. No, absolutely. And I and I completely agree with, um, you know, concerns about creating new oil fields. I think we also need to be realistic. We're not going to suddenly switch this off overnight. And if we did, um, there would be huge, you know, detrimental consequences to workers in these industries. And I think this comes back to the point of needing policies that can create these sustainable ongoing jobs in clean energy. And I just don't think that we have a clear enough direction from government yet that's allowing industry and business to get in line behind that and start putting money where it needs to go. Well, and I think that's why we're talking to Ewan Gibbs later and we'll hear a little bit more from him uh, because he's looked at the coal industry and what happened after that. Mm -hmm. um, other news items, Becky, I'll leave the ugliest till last. <laughs> so I want to talk about nappies. Yes. <laughs> Not something I ever thought I would be talking about on a podcast. Do we have to? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was uh, I was in the car yesterday listening uh, to the news and uh, hearing about the, the need to do something about nappies because disposable nappies can be incredibly detrimental to the environment um, with degradation and talking about the you know the potential for nappy taxes mm -hmm. and for me this just felt like a really inconsiderate way to go about policy and I mean Matt you've been in the same position as I have we've both had twins and that is a lot of poo that you're yep. dealing with double trouble double trouble particularly with nappies <laughs> yeah and um, and actually one of the things that was mentioned on the the news program is some of the people that you will be um, discriminating against by doing this are people that might be the least well able to um, to switch to reusable nappies. So it's just another example of um, where, you know, policy may not be that well thought through in terms of who's going to be impacted and how it's going to be impacted. And again, whilst the sentiment of switching from disposable to renewable nappies is something that I wholeheartedly get in line behind, I... I, there's no way I could have done that because yeah. let alone just trying to wrestle a baby in a nappy. And let's be honest, I, I you know, I have friends that use the um, the reusable ones. Heroes. They are not as leak proof <laughs> as the disposable no. I mean, ones. listen, we could take, we could have a whole special episode on this, we which really I'm not sure could. we get many listeners <laughs> to. But just uh, yeah. the time commitment. So I think it's just another really nice example of this idea of we want bolder action. We want to move in that direction, but the policies need to be put in place to make sure that people are able yeah. to get on board with the action that is required. And I don't think that's happening, um, you know, whether we're talking about EVs or whether we're talking about nappies. You can't say we don't cover all bases on this show. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, we, we, let's come to the matter in hand around uh, today's interview. Ewan is a historian. Uh, by by training, you know, he he takes a sort of long range view about the energy sector over the 20th century, particularly in the UK, and how this evolved, and particularly kind of what happens after the industry falls away. So the reason we really wanted to get him along was because we feel that history is important, and actually history shapes today, but also what happens today shapes tomorrow, and that brings us right back to net zero and a just transition. I think history is absolutely critical, but only if we can learn from it. And I think one of the problems that I definitely see when looking or trying to find out about, you know, initiatives that have happened in the past and how we can learn from them looking forwards is you don't always have all the evidence there. And so I feel like often when we look back, particularly when we're looking at things that were 
you know, real, really innovative at the time and the switches that were made, we often only really hear about the positive outcomes. A lot of the time, negative things can get swept under the rug and not talked about. And therefore we're not always learning in the way that we need to. And I think unless we are really reflecting back on what didn't work, why it didn't work or what worked and why it worked, we're not going to be learning enough to be able to then translate those insights. So I'm really excited to start to dig in and, and, and understand, you know, how how that has been shaped, how those, how that, how those kind of transitions of the past have been shaped and what we can learn from that to take more effective action today. Yeah, completely, completely. And I think as much as anything, um, the the just transition element and the justice element is going to be going to be massive. I'm looking forward to digging into that. I think we have a lot of specifically for Ewan's work on uh, deindustrialization. A lot of communities that were built around industries locally, um, then being hollowed out, sort of through the 80s, through the 90s, specifically communities that still have community, who still have memory and legacy of these industries, and um, who have lost out in the past through this transition. But also who have, you know, sort of connection to that to that history, connection to that place, and may very well be primed to capitalise on what we would consider now the sort of greener industries on the future as well. So I'm interested in how do we learn lessons to bring benefit into those communities to capitalise on that in a properly just transition, not just a transition or an industrial revolution that's as fast or big as possible, but one that recognises uh, these these historic issues as well. Absolutely, I'd, I'd echo both those points. It's for me, it's not just about navigating history, and making sure it doesn't trip us up as we try and deliver a cleaner future and a fairer future, but also using history, sort of leveraging history. And as you say, the cultures and the legacy that comes with that in, in a way that helps us get there quicker and, and in a fairer way. But hey, who are we to pass judgment? Ewan's the expert. But before we bring him in, we're going to have to uh, wave, sadly, we're going to have to wave goodbye to Becky. I desperately wanted to be part of this conversation. I think there's so much to be learned. But I um, I got a puppy yesterday. I know we talked a couple of episodes ago about what the some of the worst things you could do for the environment are. And I remember, Matt, you telling me <laughs> it that wasn't that top. high, to be fair. <laughs> right. But it was on the list. Okay. So. It was on the list. Yeah. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll eat, you know, less meat, fewer flights. <laughs> it's okay. You're vegan. You've got an EV. You've got to pass on this one for the moment. Um, and uh, I have to take her to the vet because it was now or November. <laughs> So, um, so. Yeah, but for the dog's sake, I'm, I'm glad you're not here for Ewan's interview. <laughs> so without further ado, let's bring in Dr. Ewan Gibbs. I'm Ewan Gibbs, a lecturer in Global Inequalities at the University of Glasgow, where I'm based in the Economic and Social History subject area. Welcome, Ewan. Thank you very much for making the time. Uh, we have been wanting to get you along for a little while now and delighted to have you here finally. Um, I think for Fraser and I, we've been keen followers of your work and trying to understand a little bit more about how history can inform what we do in terms of next steps for just transition and net zero. Um, and of course, you know, you've you've covered this work in uh, in detail before. So I just wondered initially if you could just explain a little bit about the type of work that you've covered of late, uh, particularly uh, we mentioned before uh, with regards to coal mining and the like, but just to set the scene for the listeners. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on the show, Matt. I've enjoyed following what you and Fraser are doing and it's dragged my interest into what's happening in Scotland just now and away from thinking about the more recent past. Um, my background is, is, as you say, is in studying deindustrialisation in the Scottish coal field and 
in my PhD, I, I looked at that experience as an experience that developed across the second half of the 20th century. So in this framing, deindustrialization isn't a very sudden occurrence in the 1980s, as I think it's often been understood politically, but instead it's actually a much longer uh, experience, which is managed in, in different ways, uh, more successfully and less successfully from a social welfare perspective across um, five or six decades. Um, we're still obviously living with those consequences. And that's what's taken me into my more current research. I'm currently finishing a project about the connection between fuel sources and Scottish nationalism, understanding how constitutional politics have developed around firstly coal yeah. and, and shale to a lesser extent, but then through oil and gas and now uh, renewables as well as opposition to nuclear power. And I'm going to start a British Academy Wilson Fellowship next year, which will take me to looking at that experience from a more community and workforce centres perspective, looking from a UK-wide view at how the, the long movement out of coal, which began in the the 50s, but is only really ending now with the, the closer of the last generation of fuel power, coal-fired power stations. So in that context, you and you know, you've covered off the bulk of the 20th century, probably touching upon the late 19th century as well with coal and of course into the 21st. Um, big question on many people's lips is how big are the changes that we're likely to see going forward and how do they compare to those that we've felt um, over the course of the 20th century? So from the research that you've done, do you feel that we're about to enter, enter uncharted territory with regard to disruption? Or is this just another wave of change? I think that there are differences in scale, intensity and purpose in the current energy transition from those that have gone before them, which isn't to say that there isn't a lot that we can't learn from what we've experienced in the past. Uh, you know, I, I, I was looking shortly before we began this conversation at that terrifying graph that shows that more than half of global carbon emissions took place in my lifetime uh, since 1990. And that's connected to rapid industrialization and the global spread of coal and oil technologies and their more intense use relatively recently. So I think it's important that we, we bear that in mind. I think from a more localized perspective, Scotland is a country which enjoys its relatively affluent position by global standards in the international economy from two centuries of carbon burning, um, a century and a half and more of coal, and then the last 50 years or so of oil. Um, I think there are important and valid comparisons to be made with the move to oil, gas and nuclear in the second half of the 20th century, where coal went from an overwhelmingly dominant position in Scotland and Britain's energy system to a more marginalised one. And something that I think is interesting and important there is that isn't just about the uses of energy that we might think about most of the time in terms of power generation, for instance. Like coal made the built environment as well. It made bricks, it made steel, it powered ships and trains, it made the uh, town gas that heated homes in some cases, as well as supplying electricity. Um, so quite an over a quite period of time between the fifth, the early fifties and the late seventies, 
more or less no tra- significant transport was fueled by coal anymore in a British context. Town gas had been converted to natural gas quite rapidly with the discovery of, of North Sea gas in the 60s and 70s, and coal's use in domestic heating was a fraction of what it had been. So I think there are some parallels in terms of the fact that we can make relatively quick transitions at a societal level. And also, I think it's important to note these transitions have political ramifications and are rarely simply choices that are made in the market. And I think it's important we bear that in mind. Yeah, I think something that's that's fascinating about the work that you're doing, you and, and that we talk about a lot in Scotland specifically, is the idea of a just transition. Right? Who's benefiting? Who's footing the bill? And um, where are the where are the jobs? Where are the industries? Who's extracting profit versus who gets to gets to deal with it? And um, do you see any parallels between the likes of? original industrial revolution and what we're experiencing now with renewables in terms of who is actually benefiting from this so far in terms of industry, in terms of profit as well? Yeah, I think that's a central question. And that gets back to the point I was making before, I suppose, about the inherently political nature of choices to use certain energy sources over others. Um, If we look at Andreas Malm's book, Fossil Capital, which introduces a very original and exciting analysis from that perspective about the choice to use coal in the first place and significant volume in British industry. He points to power relations, uh, particularly the labour discipline inequalities that steam-driven technologies enabled capitalists to employ. And he points to textile manufacturers in the west of Scotland is absolutely central to those decisions. and. We may have heard the term Luddites before. Um, Luddites were skilled craft workers in parts of the north of England who tried to defend their traditional status by protesting against the use of labour-saving technologies. Uh, Luddites is often a term which is used as an insult, but we could actually understand them as workers who had been displaced by the transition to a new set of technology and ultimately energy relations through the eventual adoption of of steam power. Um, Then again, obviously, the phasing out of coal technologies that that I've assessed um, had similar ramifications, whereby workers that had established a relatively secure position in an industrial system and in a national economy were threatened and displaced by the politicised choice to opt for, for our fuels. And in my book, I, I refer to some research I did at the National Archives where I found officials from the, the Ministry of Fuel and Power in the mid-1950s discussing the need to break, and this is a direct quote of a word they use, the stranglehold that coal miners and unionised rail workers enjoyed over Britain's energy system. So, you know, the transition to renewables could be a more hopeful one, um, but it might not be. And I think that In Scotland at the moment in particular, there's a big debate that's being had about who is actually benefiting from the transition to renewables, particularly from an industrial workplace perspective, and who is footing the bill. Well, you could argue the public is essentially footing the bill and that large multinational enterprises, um, some of whom have origins in the privatisation of 
the British electricity system are, are enjoying the profits. I think this is a critical point, right? I think this is really, really important. And it's something that I know, I think we've spoken about separately ourselves before, is that so much of the, like we've capitalised, we've done really well to generate clean electricity in Scotland, but so much of the, the benefit and the profit of that is it's it's going offshore. The ferret had a great investigation into that recently. But linking that back to your last answer, Ewan, do you think then that we maybe have a little bit of a gap, or maybe, maybe there isn't a gap just now, um, that we need more of sort of civic society, trade unionism to fill, to really sort of capture a lot more of that that benefit here in Scotland and in those communities? Yeah, I mean, I, certainly I'm not going to lecture uh, colleagues and comrades in the trade union movement on exactly <laughs> what they should be doing, but clearly renewables as it stands is not a sector where trade union voice has the same power that it enjoyed in, say, the coal industry for much of the 20th century. and. That was why coal provided the sort of well-paid, stable employment that it did. That wasn't a gift from from employers. It was a position that was fought for and sustained by communities in, in coal field areas. Um, there have been some notable trade union actions in, in renewables, especially the occupation of the Bifab yards in, in Fife in 2017, which I think were ultimately partly responsible for preventing their closure um, at, at, at that point and effectively putting pressure on the Scottish government to step in and take action. But I think that the form of re- sort of rescue action that the Scottish government took in 2017 and took again late late last year, early this year at BIFAB is demonstrative of, of the problem. I think we, we do need that sort of trade union mobilisation, of course we do, but I think we need that to take place in a more favourable economic framework and set of policies, which start with some basic principles, you know, about who these resources belong to and who should enjoy the benefits of them. And particularly when significant public subsidies are still being paid for the erection of wind farms, it would be possible, I believe, to to insist on conditions being met where Scottish workplaces can complete activities at a reasonable economic cost. I don't see why conditions shouldn't be applied in return for subsidy that say that those sorts of capacities should be used and developed, for instance. So you, in in this context that you, you're framing, we've just mentioned the trade union movement and trying essentially to make, if I can pigeonhole it as such, capitalism fairer or at least more accountable to the labour force. Is there possibly a bit too much stock, particularly in the media and, uh, and various um, uh, communication these days, about the technology? And it's about renewables versus oil or oil versus gas or gas versus uh, coal. That actually all these technologies are, are kind of reinforcing a similar framework around those that, you, as you just mentioned, own, those that reap the dividends, those that serve and work. Maybe the technology matters not so much here. Is it more the broader frameworks within which that technology and those industries sit? Yeah, I'm I'm very wary of that sort of technological determinism. Um, oil industries around the world look pretty different, depending on where you go. And some of the interviews I've completed in my more recent research included a an interview with a former oil worker who now works for a trade union, and he. He said to me that when he was working in oil rigs in the North Sea, that you could look at rigs in the Norwegian sector, and his phrase was, they just looked better 
like they were bigger, yeah. they were shinier, yeah. they were cleaner, <laughs> they had better cabins for uh, people to relax and sleep in. And, you know, the, the unionisation rate in Norway and, and the oil fields is more or less 100%. And uh, where multinational companies are taking part in extraction activities, they have to do it in partnership with the Norwegian state. And we are... In Scotland, I think people are quite familiar, usually with a sense that Norway managed its oil much better than Scotland did or Britain did. And yeah, that's a really important point, Ewan. So it, it, I think maybe too often people conflate um, renewables with a just transition and fossil fuels with a non-just transition. And I think the examples you've given there say, you know, pause, let's think about this. It, it isn't necessarily the case. And so we've actually got quite a lot of architectural work to do to put in place the groundwork for a just transition? Yeah, hugely. I mean, I think the problem is we're building, uh, you know, British capitalism or Scottish capitalism is going green in the context of the defeat of the labour movement in the 1980s and 1990s, the negative redistribution of wealth that followed from that and the construction of an increasingly precarious labour market. And, that includes the energy sector. Uh, you you mentioned, Fraser, that recent really important bit of research that the ferret did, but that also matches the ownership of the North Sea now, actually. The, the North Sea isn't owned so much by the big oil majors anymore. It's owned by uh, private equity firms in a lot of cases um, who have short-term interest in, in oil extraction or a passing interest in it. Um, or in our cases, it's actually owned by state-owned enterprises from other countries. And th these are the sorts of companies that often own uh, the 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 green set, you know, the green energy sector in Scotland as well. So if I can wind the clock back, you and play devil's advocate for a moment, do we think if you were to position ourselves in 1971, just just take sort of 50 years back here, uh, would we be probably in a better position to deliver a just transition for renewables? versus today. And what I'm thinking is some of the, the the developments that your book covers that you've alluded to there, the breakdown of the labor movement and the, the trade union movement, um, reinforcing more maybe laissez-faire economic standpoint. We've seen that in several elections of late. Is have, Are we taking a step backwards in that regard in terms of being fit, match fit for just transition? I mean, my argument would be that a relatively just transition was organised in the coalfields, you see, the 1940s and the 1970s, partly for those reasons that you've, you've alluded to there, that broadly speaking, the economic security of individual workers, of colliery workforces and of the communities that were built around was maintained relatively well through, you know, the largest number of pit closures, like more, pit, more collieries closed and more minors technically lost their jobs between the 40s and the 70s and did in the 80s and 90s. But they did so in a context where they were broadly, as individual workers, offered means to maintain employment within the mining industry. Well, not all of them did. And some of them chose to leave the mining industry and take up jobs in new settles that were directed to contracting coal fields. Um, jobs that were understood as cleaner, safer, and higher paid than assembly goods manufacturing, making cars at Linwood near Paisley, for instance. 
See, this is something that I think that's a nice segue, Ewan, as well, into thinking about that local level, right? Do you think the, the cultural legacy of those industries in these places that were built around around these different um, industrial centres in these communities, can we leverage that for the just transition today? Well, I mean, I think in oil and gas, there's a very direct transition. In some cases, it's happening. The The use of the NIG fabrication yard to to construct uh, wind turbines is quite interesting from that point of view, that actually some of the skills and materials that are demanded in, in oil and offshore oil in particular are very easily redeployed in forms of more offshore wind activity. I think something that is important there as well, perhaps, is a, is a tactile way of framing these discussions that, you know, I think it becomes very easy in a climate change perspective to say, well, we did all this, we burned all this coal into the air and that was terrible. And the society that built was terrible and the world that built was terrible. But clearly, yeah. the world that built for people who lived in it was often much, much better in the world that came before it. And to a lot of the people I interviewed, I think coal meant familiarity, it meant economic security, and it meant having a recognised cultural place in, in, in the nation. And I think it's important maybe that we think about how those sort of faculties could be harnessed as well. So I think there's the the quite material sort of skills element and even material objects and you know infrastructure, but there's there's possibly a for what a softer cultural question there as well, which could be useful. I, th I think you and that's a really important point you raise about you know uh, almost vilifying the history of coal rather than coal. And uh, I was watching the really interesting BBC documentary about uh, the rigs of NIG. You know, many of the oil workers there wanting to speak very positively about their experience, uh, you know, enjoying being part of a big group working on a very innovative project, cutting edge. And you have to remember at that time, this wasn't being framed as uh, a major carbon emitter and a driver of climate change in the way it is today. I, I often wonder, and I'd be interested to get your view on this, whether we need to be mindful about not vilifying these groups that we're actually looking to, whether they're ex-coal miners, ex-oil field workers, we're looking to them to adopt positive climate action. So how do we bring them on board? I think you're right about that. I think it's worth thinking about what these people tend to view positively about what they did. And supplying energy to the nation is often part of it. Being part of really impressive engineering projects of some sort or another, so building the biggest moving human object that had ever been known to man um, in the North Sea oil industry or, you know, building the only tunnel under the fourth that had ever been built and hauling coal out of the ground and mechanically conveying it to organic power station. These are obviously quite heroic stories and, and people feel like they were part of something significant and important. Um, but I think also, particularly coal miners, but also oil oil workers in a lot of cases have been involved in struggles for social justice within their workplace. It's not as though these workers in any simplistic sense have always identified with their employers or the interests of industrial lobbies or anything like that. And I think that the long struggle for economic security in the coal fields included struggles for health and safety and recognition of forms of environmental problems in their workplaces and in, in communities. Um, the formation of the OILC, the, the, oil, you know, the Oil Workers Union in, in the North Sea after Piper Alpha in 1988 in a major disaster is another example of that. So I, I think that's important. 
to think about here as well. Um, that actually there is a shared interest between environmentalists and, and workers often in these industries. If 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 that framing can be achieved and if we can think about the objectives being around long-term economic security and sustainable forms of activity. I had a follow-up, I think, which was around the kind of holes left behind of deindustrialization that you've you've uncovered with your research because I think a lot of just transition literature talks about taking something away from somebody. It might be a job, an industry, um, and and leaving them with the question about what next. But actually in Scotland, all too often, particularly with the coal industry, but you can look at the the boom and bust nature of the oil and gas industry too, that often there's nothing there to begin with. That we, you know, you, you travel across, you mentioned Paisley before, town that thread built or Glasgow and the shipbuilding. So Scotland, you know, historically, there are big holes left there. It, how how do we how what do we do with that for a net zero transition? Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, and one of the problems in the Scottish labour market for some time is actually a skills utilisation problem. And that is only growing worse as the North Sea industry enters long-term contractions. So I think we need to start with the thought of actually, how are we going to use and preserve the skills we've got? Because organising a just transition in the sort of framing we're thinking of usually starts with the assumption that you have a fairly large industrial workforce and we'll take them out of doing what they're doing at the moment and we'll put them into something else. But actually, you're right. In Scotland, we're already at a point where, you know, we've had two or three generations of deindustrialization already. Um, we're not, the, the, the carbon intensive sectors we already have are not using those skills effectively. What concerns me is I'm not, at, at the moment, there's not, I think, a great case for optimism that green sectors are going to do that either. So I guess the big the big question just to to wrap up on you is does history matter when planning the net zero transition and how do we how do we use it to our advantage going forward? I mean I'm obviously going to say that history matters. Um <laughs> you are a historian we, of course, yeah. I'd say we live in a world that is produced and reproduced by fossil fuels and I think that's really important for us to recognize that we can't just excavate ourselves from that and pretend we don't live in, a, in that sort of society. Um, the carbon economy, social relations, the political ideologies that we understand the world through, and the inequalities that that sort of economy is, is imbued in our society or the landscape that we're all navigating as we make the case for a just transition or, or net zero society. That includes the the business and corporate landscape um, and the powerful role that multinationals play in, in economic sectors. But it also includes the structures and ways of thinking that dominate government. I think at a more diffuse level, it also shapes our views on what amounts to personal freedom and collective responsibility. Um, and there's dangers there, obviously. I think fossil fuels are important to what we might think of as Prometheanism or the sense that humankind can achieve anything and that we, we can and should achieve anything. Um, but as the benefits of faith in human agency that, that, that can be associated with that and the capacity to change the world. There's only been in the era of fossil fuels that 
you know, the sorts of industrial feats we've been discussing here have been possible and things that we think of as mundane would have seemed incredible uh, to ordinary people a century or two centuries ago. And I think connected to that, um, global flows of goods, technology and ideas can obviously cause damage, um, and they do every day, but they also create a collective reliance, and that can be quite important And we're thinking about the potential for the sort of scale and intensity of action we're looking for. Um, the last thing I want to say is that also modern nation states and polities have been constructed by the context of fossil fuels as well. So the mechanisms uh, of transition that are products of industrial capitalist societies, the mechanisms of energy transitions and the forms of conflict that have shaped them are really important, I think, to building the transition out of fossil fuels themselves, that there is a shared set of circumstances and a shared set of societal conflicts and, and objectives that shaped earlier transitions that will also shape this one. Ewan, thank you very much. You have covered tremendous ground, probably the best part of uh, three centuries worth. So thank you very much for uh, for that. Really interesting. Thanks a lot. I wonder whether we might be able to ask you to stick around to play our future or fiction. Okay. Thank you very much, Matthew. For the uninitiated, which I'm surmising includes Ewan from that response, Future or Fiction is a game that we play at the end of every episode where I pitch our esteemed guest with a brand new technological innovation and they have to decide if it's real, i.e. they think it's the future, or if I've just pulled it out my backside. Now, we know that I uh, I love my clunky segues on this, so how about this one, right? This technology is called... Let's Dance. That's Let's Dance. So anyone who follows Ewan on Twitter will know that Ewan, like my good self, is a Scotland football fan and everyone knows that we can boogie. But how about this? A European nightclub has installed a dance floor that harnesses the energy of people dancing to power its light and sound systems. Through special flooring that captures power from pressure and latent heat, the system provides a substantial amount of the club's electricity, putting the energy of its revelers to good use. Do we think that's the future, or do we think it's fiction? Well, this this is a tricky one. This is reminding me, Fraser, of uh, the, the sort of well-known nightclub that used to be on the on the Tyne in Newcastle, which had the revolving uh, the dance floor <laughs> it was lit up. But I'm not sure that captured. It probably did in a roundabout way as the boat rocked uh, from one side to the other. Um, Ewan, have you got any prior knowledge of this at all? I've never heard of this before, but I quite like the idea of it. I think I want it to be the future, even if it isn't. So I'm going to go for future and hope rather than expectation. It's this notion that if you stop dancing, the music might just cease, right? So, you know, it's usually the other way around, right? um, I I imagine there's some storage element to it. It's not you are keeping it going and you can never stop dancing to to keep the club in power. I'm sure we've had something similar to this in the past, Fraser, where we had... 
Uh, I've had a few kinetic ones, I think, but mm -hmm. there was one, if my memory serves me correctly, about gym equipment, and I honestly can't remember the result of that, which is a problem, because if I knew that, I might know this one. Um, mm -hmm. I'm quite sure the tech exists for this, and so that's the first hurdle you, and this is where I normally now fall over, because the question is, is anybody actually bothering to do this? I think somebody out there somewhere is is doing this dodgy nightclub in Ibiza. I yeah, why not? I'm 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 going I'm going future. You're going future. So you and you and as I should say, whenever we have a guest on, we will take your answer. Then Matt gives his answer. Traditionally, we give you a chance to change your answer because Matt is always wrong. So if you want to switch and go for fiction that's i'm not trying to get in your head too much no i'm sticking i'm going for a hole it's the equivalent of phoning a friend if you knew that friend was <laughs> was definitely wrong so. okay well i think we're in agreement you and both futures so yeah dodgy kinetic nightclubs um yeah future for sure future future the answer is It's the future. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Now we need the address because we're going. You there. do. Yeah. Oh, I've got it for you. <laughs> the, you'll 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 believe exactly where it is. It's called Club Watt in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. It's installed a piezoelectric floor, piezoelectric floor that harnesses the pressure of people's dancing feet to power light and sound. Wait, it's called Club Watt as well. Club Watt, yeah. So I think that's it's like probably, a whole. It's the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, that's that's where we're recording the next episode. So uh, we'll get. I'm sure <laughs> from everywhere we can get the ferry. That's all right then. That's low carbon enough. Good stuff. Okay. Well, thank you, Ewan. Thank you, Fraser. It's been another excellent uh, episode. So you've been listening to the Local Zero Pod. You can find us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter. Uh, please engage. Please let us know what you would like us to cover off in the future, and we'll do our best to do so. But until then, and until the next episode, thank you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Produced by Bespoken Media.